Last week, we had our Christmas program and banquet. So those of you that were blessed by being able to join us know what a great time we had together and great food. The play was wonderful. The music was wonderful. The food was... Andy, I don't know how you'd describe it. It was uh, heavenly, let's say. Um, we of all people are most blessed, are we not? The week before that, we heard a sermon from yours truly, taken from John chapter 5. We only looked at six verses, 10 through 15, and I brought up some very difficult things to bring up, but they are in Scripture, so we had to talk about them. And uh, so we uh, did, and we continued in our Gospel of John. I know some of you were not pleased with me. Um, that's okay, because I'm not here to please you. I'm sorry, that's not why I've come to preach, is not to make you happy, it's to challenge you from the Word of God. So that's what I tried to do. Um, you can disagree with me, and if you feel like yelling at me, come to a basketball game and just scream out how terrible a job the ref is doing, and, uh, and then go home and you'll have all that off your chest. You'll feel better, I'll feel better, everybody will feel better. Verses 10 through 15 of John 5 give an, an account of the immediate aftermath of the miraculous healing Jesus performed on a man who had been lame for 38 years and was lying beside the pool of Bethesda with a large host of others in need of healing. From the text, it appears as though this man was suffering from his infirmity as a result of his own sinful actions. And that's something you and I cannot know. Christ can know because he is God. We have no idea what those actions may have been. I, I suggested some wild story to you just to give you an idea of what the text was trying to teach us, not because um, I have any warrant for that, but it's not any of our business as to what he did. Otherwise, Scripture would have recorded it. Having said this, there is only one very important detail that we learned from the text, and that was that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. That's why John's recording the story, because it took place on the Sabbath. And that kicked off a series of controversies that would last all the way until Jesus' crucifixion, about 18 months. According to the man-made Sabbath rules of that day, healing was forbidden, and carrying a bed was forbidden, and yet Jesus healed, and he commanded the man to take up his bed and walk. The ruling elites didn't like this challenge to their authority one little bit, and that's human nature. So they sought Jesus out for the purpose of persecuting him and eventually putting him to death. Utterly irrational, but that, again, is human nature. The three principles or lessons I attempted to draw from the text were these. One, human nature has not changed. Number two, Christians should set aside one day in seven for holy rest. And number three, it is Jesus that first seeks us. And that is why he came, to seek and to save those who are lost. As I mentioned in the last sermon two weeks ago, the remainder of John 5 is one of the clearest and most powerful expressions of the deity of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. Verse 16 through the end of the chapter are densely packed with the truth, nearly as intensely as the first 18 verses of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that passage. But in order to keep the narrative flowing at a reasonable pace, we won't be spending the same amount of vast time 
on each of the phrases that we'll encounter like we did in chapter 1. I've decided in order to make the rest of chapter 5 easier to navigate and think about, I've broken the text down into small bite-sized portions. And I'll give you those portions and make brief comments on them and allow you to study them further on your own. So let's read together, if you would, with me. John chapter 5, we're going to read the first half of the Divinity Sermon, which begins in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 30. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. This is the Word of God. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming. And now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can, of myself, do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are looking at a passage of Scripture that is so densely packed with truth we can't even begin to unpack it all. But I pray that it is by your Spirit that you would reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ this morning through this text. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when I was giving the message, we talked a great deal about human nature how people respond, how people act, how unbelievers can act, how believers should respond to the types of things that happen. But I promised you at that time, be patient with me because we're going to get into the divinity sermon in which we are going to talk about the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where we are today. So I've divided today's sermon into two main parts. 
the first part is verses 16 to 23, in which Jesus speaks of his relationship with the Father. And then the second part is verses 24 through 30, in which Jesus speaks of his relationship to man. In each of these two main categories, in the pattern of John the Apostle, I'm going to give seven brief points, or bullets, bullet points, so that we have bite-sized pieces of very complex sermon to digest. Some of these bullet points, I will comment only a few words, a sentence or two. Others may take a bit longer, but let's get into the text and look at these uh, two groups of seven characteristics. In verse 16, we see that Jesus has entered into the confrontation with the Jewish elites. Jesus was never scared of controversy. And that is the background to which we enter the conversation beginning in verse 16. So the first thing we learn, the first characteristic of Jesus that we learn in this text is Jesus' identity. Although John doesn't record all the details leading into this sermon, it appears as though Jesus is speaking directly to the Jewish religious leaders in these verses. And the first two words Jesus says to them are, my father. Now, you and I might not think a lot of these words, but for Jesus to say of God, my father, was unimaginable at that time and place. The Old Testament gives us a general impression of, of God as the father, in the sense that he has taken Israel to be his son, as well as his general care for all people. And later in the New Testament, Jesus even taught his disciples to begin their prayer with the words, Our Father, but to call God my Father. And the Greek text is the Father of me. As Jesus did, it was unheard of by any of the Old Testament prophets, including Moses, and certainly the rabbis of Jesus' day. They would never refer to God as my Father. Now, today, you and I can call God my Father, but only, only because we are in Christ. Only because we are in Christ. The Jews who heard this, my Father, picked up on it right away. Didn't slip past them. Look at their representation of Jesus' words in verse 18. Jesus not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, and they understood exactly what this meant, making himself equal with God. They had the same nature, the same substance. The words they chose have an emphasis which could read that Jesus declared God to be his very own father. God is my very own father, very emphatic. To summarize, Jesus' identity is as the son of God, and therefore he shares the very nature of God, making him equal with God. For Jewish monotheists in the first century, including Jesus' disciples, this must have been an incredibly challenging truth to wrestle with. There is no getting around verse 17. Jesus' identity 
is the identity of God. Number two, Jesus' authority. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Of course, Jesus is saying this because the confrontation with which he is involved centers around Sabbath observance. And according to the rules, a person shouldn't work on the Sabbath. I think what Jesus was driving at here, saying that his father was working until now and he is working, is the Genesis account where it says that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. But Jesus recognized that although God rested from his creative activity, he never stopped working in terms of sustaining his creation and even beginning the process of redeeming creation. And Jesus, as the Son of God, is also working. In fact, we learn in Colossians that it is Jesus Christ that holds all things together and has done so from the beginning right up until this very moment. So Jesus Christ has been holding every particle of the universe together since the beginning of creation. So this is when we get to verse 18, which explains that this straightforward statement by Jesus, which is only about a dozen words or so, these words caused the Jewish religious leaders to completely lose their cool. In fact, uh, to, to use a phrase that I don't use very often, they are apoplectic. They want now to kill Jesus. Because one, he broke the Sabbath, and two, he called God his own personal father, making himself equal with God. Now, I need to pause on one more idea before we get to point number three. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of having broke the Sabbath. This word broke is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's often translated loose, as in Matthew 16, verse 19. Uh, Jesus says this to his disciples, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose, there's the same word, on earth will be loosed in heaven. Same word uh, as broke the Sabbath, loosed the Sabbath. We have a more tangible example in Mark chapter 11, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. Same word as broke in Jesus broke the Sabbath. Finally, John also uses this same word earlier in our text. Chapter 2, verse 19 of the same gospel. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That word destroy is the same word as what Jesus, as they accused Jesus of doing to the Sabbath. So when Jesus uses this word destroy, the idea is of like this, that the mortar that is holding the building together lets go and the building crumbles in on itself. 
It doesn't mean to annihilate or to wipe out suddenly, but rather to disintegrate to the point where it no longer serves the purpose for which it was designed. These Jews were not merely accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath like someone might break a rule by driving too fast, Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> Did I say that all out? Like driving too fast or shoplifting. In those cases, the rule still stands, even though it has been broken by an individual. That's not what they're saying. They are saying, the Jews are saying in the text, they are accusing Jesus of loosing the Sabbath, destroying it by dissolving the mortar that holds it together. I think this is Jesus' purpose with the Sabbath law and every other ceremonial law. For example, you may have noticed that we didn't gather here this morning to slaughter an animal. I hope you noticed, because we didn't. Because at Jesus' death and resurrection, his redemptive work was entirely fulfilled, perfected, and completed. So he entirely satisfied the purpose of the Sabbath law in himself. Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And he was resurrected to glory on Sunday morning, never to die again. So the Sabbath is per perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Finally, in Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, which uh, I'll let you read at home, we won't take the time to read it today, tells us that it is through faith in Christ that we enter that Sabbath rest. And the scripture is very plain on which day is Sabbath. This might surprise you. What does Hebrews say is the Sabbath for the Christian? Today. And tomorrow it will also be today. And Tuesday will also be today. We have entered Christ's rest. Because today is the day of salvation. There is no getting around all of verse 17. Jesus' authority is the authority of God. Number three, Jesus' activity. The Son does nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. In other words, Jesus is not living independently, just like I am not preaching independently with my own ideas. He lives every moment of every day doing what the Father does and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Why should we, as infinitely weaker vessels, Expect that we have the strength to live independently from God, cut off from the power of the Spirit. We can't. There's no getting around verse 19. Jesus' actions are the actions of God. Number four, Jesus' knowledge. The Father shows Jesus all that he is doing. Now, this always brings up the later statement of Jesus speaking about his coming when he says to the disciples in Mark 13, 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows. I we have a few people in our culture that could learn a lesson from this verse. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, 
nor the Son, but only the Father. The question comes up then, if the Father shows the Son all that he is doing, why didn't Jesus know the day and hour of his coming? It is impossible in the short time we have to delve into this topic entirely. That's not my intention. But I want to give at least some explanation here. I think it's warranted. The second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Logos, whom we encountered in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. About 2,000 years ago, took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, as God, therefore, must have limited himself in some aspects of his deity in order to live as you and I live as mortal men. It seems as though one of the limitations he put on himself was his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. So now I have to be very careful. When we start talking about the details of the hypostatic union between Jesus' human nature and his divine nature, as well as the nature of the three persons of the Trinity, we are walking where angels fear to tread. So I don't want to make any statements that might mislead you from the facts of Scripture. I will simply suggest this as something to consider. It seems to me that Jesus, in his divine nature, had all knowledge, including that of his second coming. But as the infinitely wise God, he chose not to access that knowledge in this instance for the purpose of remaining completely reliant on the Father and as an example to his disciples and to us, just as he said in the previous verse. That would mean that now, today, in his resurrected, glorified body, those limitations have all been removed. That's the best I have for you. But there is still no getting around verse 20. Jesus knows what God knows. Jesus ties this off by telling the Jews, if you'll pardon my vernacular, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Makes me think of the guy that who visited the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Some friends of his bring him to the Grand Canyon because they look forward to seeing what his reaction will be. So he goes to the Grand Canyon and he's, he stops and he looks around. Somebody asks him, well, <laughs> what do you think? And he replies, something happened here. You'll get it, yeah. Number five, Jesus' sovereignty. The Son gives life to whomever he wishes. I cannot comprehend, I tried to, of any statement that demonstrates sovereignty more than this one. Jesus not only gave life to Nicodemus and the woman at the well, he also gave life to Lazarus, whom he called out of the tomb after four days. And if you're a Christian, Jesus has called you out of the grave just as surely as he called Lazarus out of the grave. There's no getting around it. Jesus' sovereignty over life and death is God's sovereignty over life and death. Number six, Jesus' judgment. The Father has given all judgment over to Jesus. 
You may not believe in him today, but you will believe in him one day. Because every one of us will stand before him in judgment. You will either stand before him in love and joy and gratitude, or you will stand in front of him in stark, unimaginable terror. Because this one, whom you treated so flippantly all your life, is the God of the universe, looking into your eyes and calling you to account. <clears throat> Jesus' judgment is God's judgment, verse 22. Finally, for this first half of the sermon, Jesus' worthiness. So really, this is the exclamation point on all of these other attributes. Jesus is worthy. Our text reads that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone that does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Those two words in verse 23, just as. All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father are in the Greek called an indeclinable adverb. Don't let your eyes glaze over. I'm not going to go into that. But it means that the two sides of the clause are equal. In other words, we could translate this, that all may honor the Son in exactly the same way as they honor the Father. Now, if the Jews hadn't completely lost it yet, this would have done it. Jesus is saying, honor me the way you honor God. They would have been out of their minds. Imagine being a Jew in the first century. For thousands of years, your people have been monotheists. Hear, O Israel, the scriptures said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a death sentence to worship any other God than the one true God of Israel. And Jesus comes along and says that if you don't honor me in precisely the same way as you honor the Father, you're not honoring either one of us. I say this knowing full well that there are all sorts of religions, and some that even call themselves Christians, that claim to honor the God of the Bible. But they say all sorts of things about Jesus that are contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. They do not honor Jesus Christ just as they honor the Father. And therefore, they repudiate them both. Now, you may not like that. But I'm not here, as I said earlier, to only say things that you like or don't like. I'm here to proclaim what the text says. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking would loudly proclaim, that's blasphemy. And they would be absolutely correct. Unless it's true. Either Jesus spoke the truth, and he was exactly whom he proclaimed to be, 
or he was the greatest lunatic and megalomaniac that ever walked the planet. There are no options left open in between for us. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? I choose to believe that Jesus is telling the truth. And he is exactly who he claimed to be. God the Son. So verse 23 leaves us with only one conclusion. Jesus is as worthy of our worship as God. Because Jesus is God. That moves, thank you, that moves us into Jesus uh, continues this sermon talking about his relationship to man, maybe to you and I. So Jesus shifts gears. He shifts focus now in verse 24 to the effects of his relationship with God in his dealings with us. Because Jesus is who he is, he's got some very important things to say to us. This will go, by the way, much quicker than the previous section. For those of you checking the clock, yeah, this is shorter. And I've tried to lay it out in a very logical sequence of events. If you look at the outline, you will see that every one of these, as Jesus laid it out, leads directly into the next statement, very clearly. Number one, those who hear and believe have life. Jesus says that having life means not coming under judgment. Because the believer has placed his faith in Christ, the judgment that we deserved... Jesus Christ received while he hung on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore not much condemnation. That's the, called the old dead version. No. Romans 8.1 reads, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I should be hearing a great hallelujah from all you Pentecostals. <laughs> Number two, those who have life were once dead. This may seem obvious to us, but the subtle truth here is that sinners aren't so good as they may think. We are not born good and choose sin. We are born with a sin nature and live out our nature. And we must be made alive through faith in Christ. Number three, the dead are given life by Christ. Christ alone gives life. There is no exemption clause. We can plead before God. The Christian message, the gospel, is exclusive. It's one of the great criticisms of the message. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth. And the life, no one, not one single person comes to the Father but by me. As much as this may offend people of other religions or no religion at all, the nature of truth is to be exclusive. What do I mean? Two plus two equals four. Not a little less than four or a little more than four. No matter how much number three and number five are offended that they're not the answer to two plus two. They are simply excluded. The answer is what it is. That's the nature of truth. 
Salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ, God the Son, who purchased our redemption by his blood and secured it by his resurrection. We should not be upset that it is so exclusive. We should be grateful that God even gave us one way. Christ is the judge, number four. And verse 27 tells us that he is judge because he is the Son of Man. I wish I had more time to explore this topic of the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. But I'll simply refer to the Old Testament text that Jesus drew this title from. Jesus took this title on himself because he knew Daniel 7. So let's just read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is precisely where Jesus drew this title, Son of Man, from. And I want you to pay attention to what's all happening. There's a thousand things happening. Pay attention to as much as you can about what the Son of Man is accomplishing here. Daniel, Daniel speaking. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And where did he come to? He came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, then to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Can you wrap your mind around what the Father is giving to Jesus Christ when he approaches him on his throne? This is right at the, at the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. Look at everything he's given him. Why are we continuing to live as Christians in a defeatist stance on a defeat against a defeated enemy? We've already won. Now go and live it. It says that the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that a few people and maybe a couple nations and uh, just one language because the King James Version, are, should serve him. It's not what the text says. His, he's given a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. So what's your job? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority has been given to Christ, not only in heaven, but on earth, even in Canada. Get off my soapbox for a moment. Number five, the judge will resurrect everyone. Every single human being that has ever or will ever be conceived, will at some point stand before Jesus Christ and be judged by him. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all, there's that word again, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one 
may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. People throughout the centuries have practically stood on their heads to twist this verse in every way imaginable to avoid its plain meaning and exclude themselves somehow from judgment. But the text is the text. And I challenge you to simply read the words. I suppose the only question that remains is whether your judgment was already poured out on Jesus Christ by God at the cross and you are in him or whether your judgment still awaits. Number six, with resurrection comes judgment. Some are summoned to a resurrection of life. Some are summoned to a resurrection of condemnation. Number seven, Jesus' judgment is righteous. The judgment of Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. Anyone less righteous than Jesus Christ is condemned. That's right, I did say that out loud. Anyone less righteous than Jesus Christ is condemned. He is the standard. He is the measure. What hope do I have then? You might ask, and my answer is this. There is only one hope. All your sin must be imputed to Christ for which he died on the cross, and all Christ's righteousness must be imputed to you as a free gift through trusting him. That's it. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is everything. And that's why it is the centerpiece of all human history. Three practical lessons. I'm done yelling at you guys already. Your turn to show up at a basketball game and yell at me. And yes, next week will be a Christmas message. We will take a break from the Gospel of John. So I don't have to yell at you for a whole... 40 minutes again. <clears throat> Three practical lessons. Number one, Jesus Christ is the image of God. Imagine that you are standing in front of a mirror. <laughs> it's easier for some than for others. Whatever you do, the image in the mirror does. Precisely. Now imagine that the image that you are looking at is actually another person. Still, everything you do, the person in the mirror does exactly. And I think this is the sense in which Jesus Christ is the image of God. You and I are created in the image of God, but Jesus has existed eternally as the image of God. Number two, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. This follows directly from number one, obviously. A little over 2,000 years ago, the image of God took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary in a barn, I might add. He experienced fatigue, hunger, thirst, pain, and even eventually torture and death so that he could identify with his creation and shower us with his grace, mercy, and love, all the while 
never committing a single sin in thought or in deed. In this capacity, the Bible calls Jesus Christ the second Adam. Everywhere Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Number three, as the Son of Man, there is nothing that is not under Christ's authority. From our perspective, when we look at Christ, we call him the Son of God. From God's perspective, when he looks at Christ, he calls him the Son of Man. He is perfectly both. And as the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days, the Father at the Ascension, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, and our only reasonable response as human beings is to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have blessed us with one of the most powerful scriptures this morning, and I pray that not a single person here would not be impacted and moved and transformed by the power of your word, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that we would understand who Jesus is just a little better by looking at these eternal words. And I pray that you would implant the truth of Jesus Christ into every heart here. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would give us the the strength to in some way, somehow, reflect the image of Jesus Christ to our community in whatever capacity we have, in service to you, that your name may be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.